I want you to think for a minute about what you believe and how those beliefs shape the way you live. What do you, what do you believe about the money or the lack of money you have in your bank account? Do you believe that money is primarily God's money? Is it primarily his gift to you? Or do you believe that money was primarily earned by you? What do you believe about that money, and how does that belief shape the way you spend it? How does that belief shape the way you give to the, to the church? How does that belief shape the way you are generous with your finances? But when you have less money, how does that belief shape the way you experience feelings of anxiety? And when there is more money, how does that belief shape the way you experience feelings of pride and arrogance? What about work? How does what you believe about work shape how you work Sunday through Saturday? Or let's get a little more personal. How does what you believe about sin shape the way you react when confronted by your own sin? How does what you believe about that shape the way you respond to others when they sin against you? Beyond thinking about your, how your beliefs shape the way you live, where do those beliefs come from to begin with? Do they come from previous authority figures? Do they come from conversations you have with others in the culture? Do they come from the movies you watch or what you take in on your news feed? Or, or do they come from something else? Are your beliefs being shaped and reshaped by Scripture and engaging and understanding God's Word in the, in the context of a local church? How is the way you live day to day being shaped by biblical doctrine? How is the way you live your day-to-day being shaped by the doctrines of the gospel? In his book, The Gospel, author Ray Ortland highlights a quote from William Tyndale, a church leader who lived centuries ago. And in that quote, he identifies that the word gospel actually signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing, dance, and leap for joy. When we believe the gospel, when we understand what it means, when it has an impact in our life, this is the impact it has. When we believe scripture, when we take to heart the teachings of the gospel and the teachings of the church, it should produce joy and excitement and dancing in our day-to-day reality. But he goes on to say, but here is something troubling. If a message so good lies at the defining center of our churches, and I would add our individual lives, why do we see such bad things in those same churches? And again, in our individual lives. Why do we see things ranging from active strife to sheer exhaustion? Where is the saving power of the gospel? Why don't we see more of Tyndale's singing 
dancing and leaping for joy in our churches if the good news is setting the tone? Why does so much dysfunction exist in the church? And why does so much dysfunction exist in our individual lives? Perhaps, rather than the doctrines of the gospel setting the tone in our life, something else is. Perhaps, rather than the gospel shaping how we live and act and respond, we're dismissing the way it forms our everyday reality. For those of you newer to our church, my name is Paul Gardner, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And for the, for the past few months, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Timothy. And the subtitle we've given this series is The Blueprints of a Healthy Church. We've examined how a healthy church cultivates a culture where people are growing in godliness and growing in maturity and growing at bringing others to know him. The author, the Apostle Paul, he's been teaching us how a healthy church engages the gospel. And our, our lead pastor is, is out of town this morning, and while he's been, taking, he's been taking and preaching a few verses at a time, he's delegated to me the task of preaching a whole chapter. <laughs> All of chapter 4. In this chapter, we're going to examine how a, how a healthy church engages something called doctrine. So, so before we get too far, we should talk about this word doctrine for a minute. What does doctrine mean? Is doctrine beliefs? Is it values? Is it a statement of faith? Well, it certainly could mean those things. But more than beliefs or values or a statement of faith, doctrine is the set of convictions that possess actual authority in our everyday lives. They are those set of beliefs or values or principles that determine and bind how we live. They set the tone for what we do. And because these are principles or beliefs that possess authority, or they bind or they set the tone for how we live, you don't, you don't, even, you don't have to be a so-called person of faith to value doctrine. For example, let's take an environmentalist for a minute. The environmentalist lives by the doctrine that it is vitally important to care for the earth. And men and women, in their fallenness, because they are careless, they are destroying the earth. They're destroying the earth with pollution and mismanagement of resources. And so, as an, as an environmentalist, these beliefs or these values bind how they act. Because they believe this, it sets the tone for how an environmentalist lives. They must recycle. They must reject gas-guzzling vehicles and use fuel-efficient cars or ride a bike to work. They must advocate for others to do so. They must reject and, and reduce their use of fossil fuels. There is a set of beliefs or values that bind or set the tone for how that individual lives. That's their doctrine. For the Christian, doctrine provides us a vision of who we are. We are sinners who grieve our sin and fallenness. But if we are in Christ, we have been saved by his mercy and grace, and that gives us great joy. 
Doctrine gives us a vision of who we are to live for. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for Christ and his glory, and we live to bless and serve others. And doctrine gives us a vision for how we are to live. Paul has been teaching our vision for godliness is Christ. He sets the tone for what it means to be godly. If our life is centered in him, the way we engage sin, the way we react when confronted by sin, the way we respond when others sin against us, even the trials we face on earth, what we talk about, what we care about, it is shaped by our beliefs about Christ. The doctrine you believe shapes the way you live. It shapes how you pray for others. It shapes how you interact with the opposite sex. It shapes how you handle money. It shapes how you interact with community and how you have conflict in community. Paul's concern in the fourth chapter of 1 Timothy is the doctrine of a church. If doctrine sets the tone, or doctrine binds how we live, how does a healthy church cultivate growth and maturity with its doctrine? What might happen in an unhealthy church that would lead to its decline, that would lead it to be unhealthy? Such a church would lose its focus. It would lose its focus on the teachings that should set the tone for how we live. So this brings us to our big idea this morning. Doctrinal dysfunction destroys a healthy church. A church that does not hold to the right doctrine will not be healthy. An individual who does not hold to beliefs or values consistent with the gospel will not grow in godliness. Only believing and valuing and holding on to healthy doctrine will produce health and godliness and maturity. So to unpack this big idea, we're going to examine three types of doctrinal dysfunction identified in 1 Timothy. And I'm going a little bit crazy with alliteration this morning. So those three types are doctrinal deceit, doctrinal dyspraxia, and declining doctrinal declaration. If you don't like my alliteration, don't don't worry. We'll unpack each of these in turn as we jump into the passage together. So let's begin with doctrinal deceit. And we're going to start at the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, and teaching of demons. There is doctrinal deceit at work. Now, it's interesting to note that the doctrinal deceit at work is not a denial of things like Jesus being fully man, or Jesus being fully God, or that God is holy, or that man is sinful. Denying doctrine like this is certainly addressed in other areas of Scripture, but that's not what's going on here. 
There were teachers that were falsely binding the consciences of people, teaching them that in order to live as a Christian, they must not get married or they must not eat certain foods. They were restricting the freedom they had as followers of Christ. They were falsely setting the tone for how people were to live. So a good definition of doctrinal deceit is that doctrine is taught in a way that falsely binds people's consciences. It's not that we believe that we're not a Christian, maybe, but we falsely label particular actions as anti-Christian or sinful. And so as we interact with others, we judge others falsely. We label them as embracing sin or embracing sinful practices. And if we embrace this type of doctrine internally, our consciences are bound falsely, and we experience false guilt or shame over decisions we're making and how we're living. A a phrase sometimes repeated by those who teach or embrace doctrinal deceit is people are only living as Christians when, and what comes after the when is not actually found in Scripture. Let me give you an example. People are only living as Christians when they do not drink alcohol. Okay, full disclosure, many, many of you know that I like a good beer. Okay? Not like Bud Light or Miller Light like somebody offered me at the pool yesterday. I don't, like the, I don't think God intended to create beer that way. <laughs> but if you're, if you're taking notes, I, I like good craft beers, in particular, IPAs. Again, if you're taking notes, I love like beers from Cross Train and Papillion. <laughs> now, we can all agree the Bible teaches Christians to avoid drunkenness. Throughout Scripture, we see the foolishness and fallenness of getting drunk. We encounter prohibitions on getting drunk. We actually read, we actually read a couple weeks ago that a qualification of an elder is that he is not prone to drunkenness. So Scripture does bind us in a way that forbids drunkenness. Yet Scripture does not forbid drinking alcohol altogether. Now, is it wise for Christians to sometimes avoid alcohol? Yes. Is it wise for some Christians who've had problems with drunkenness in the past to avoid alcohol altogether? Yes. But that does not mean that people are only living as Christians when they do not drink alcohol. Teaching or believing prohibition of alcohol to this degree would falsely bind consciences. And so if you you encounter me drinking at a party, you may conclude falsely that I or our church embraces sin. Or you may conclude falsely that I should not be an elder. You may accuse our church of embracing sinful practices. Or maybe, maybe you hold this belief personally. And, and, and again, you have the false conviction that drinking alcohol is sinful. And so this idea of, of a sip of a beer or a drink of wine at, at a party, the, the thought of it makes you experience feelings of false guilt and false shame. Such a person would demonstrate that their conscience might be falsely bound. 
Believing people are only living as Christians when they do not drink alcohol falsely binds the conscience. In what ways do you falsely bind the conscience of others? Or, or in what ways is your conscience falsely bound? How might you be judging others falsely? Or how might you be experiencing guilt and shame and fear because you believe things bind you in ways that reduce the freedom you have in the gospel? Personally, I've seen this play out in a number of ways in the life of Christians through the years. Maybe, maybe they believe they should be living on mission, but, the, but in order to live on that mission, they reduce it to a particular way of having, having neighbors into their home once a week. And so if they don't make that happen, there's these feelings of false guilt and shame. Maybe they believe that people are only living as Christian parents when they school their children in a particular way. Or maybe they they believe that we're caring for orphans only if we adopt foster care, or or, excuse me, if we engage the foster care system, or if we adopt children into our home. Or maybe we believe that a husband is only living as a Christian when he makes more money than his wife. Or maybe, maybe we believe that a Christian husband or wife is not fulfilling, loving one another if they're not engaging or experiencing sexual intimacy at a particular frequency. Or maybe you believe people are living as Christians only when they vote for a particular political candidate or affiliate with a particular political party. And so when people don't live according to your convictions, you falsely judge them. You label their actions as anti-Christians. Paul is helping us understand when doctrine is taught in a way that falsely binds the consciences of people, it is deceitful. In fact, such doctrine is demonic. The Ephesians had rejected means of experiencing God's greatest created gifts. And while there are certainly reasons to avoid particular foods, those of you with gluten intolerance know what I'm talking about, and there are certainly reasons to abstain from marriage, Paul actually outlines reasons for both of these positions in another one of his letters to label eating particular foods or enjoying the gift of marriage as anti-Christian, to say people are only living as Christians when they remain single and they didn't eat a particular they didn't eat particular foods, it is deceitful. There is freedom to enjoy such gifts. Don't teach or embrace doctrine in a way that falsely binds the consciences of people. Don't do it. Such use of doctrine is deceitful and demonic, and it leads the church to experience decline and decay. Doctrinal deceit is the first type of doctrinal dysfunction Paul is talking about. The second we'll call doctrinal dyspraxia. Because normally, normally when individuals talk about healthy doctrine, they're referring to the actual teaching. It's kind of what's written down on paper. What a church teaches about who God is, or what a church teaches about the church, or what a church teaches about how man should live, or about marriage, or friendship, or parenting. We often think of doctrine as the teachings that are upheld by a church 
that are intended to bind the consciences of people. Praxis means practice. It has to do with the actions of the people in the church. If doctrinal deceit is teaching in a way that falsely binds the consciences of people, in doctrinal dyspraxia, doctrine does not bind us or it does not set the tone for how we live. We, we do not practice sound doctrine. We do not th- do things to actually grow in ways consistent with sound doctrine. We demonstrate how little it sets the tone in our lives. For example, the last, the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us, we've, we've learned about how God's word affirms the type of leaders we should have in the church, the type of character that deacons and elders should have. They should be hospitable. They should not be double-tongued. They should manage their households well. If we as a church affirm leaders that are not hospitable, that do not show concern for how they manage their households, that speak poorly of the church or others in the church, we're, we're demonstrating that God's word and the teaching of God's word in the church, that it really does not set the tone for how we live as a church. We're demonstrating that it does not bind our consciences. Something else does. In going back to what we said earlier in, in the introduction, when the doctrine of the gospel binds us, the fruit that, that will be produced is joy and excitement. When our churches lack joy and excitement, when we are exhausted, or when we abandon our commitment to pray for and care for and love our brothers and sisters, we are demonstrating it is, it is not biblical doctrine that sets the tone for our church. A different doctrine does. Listen to, to Pastor Ray Ortland again. Churches that do not exude humility, inclusion, peace, life, hope, and honesty, even if they have gospel doctrine on paper, they undercut their own doctrine at a functional level where it should count in the lives of actual people. Churches that are haughty, exclusivistic, contentious, exhausted, past-oriented, and in denial are revealing a gospel deficit. Because of how they are living, a doctrinal deficit is revealed. Because believing healthy doctrine, right doctrine, it produces godliness. This is what healthy doctrine does. For us as a church, it's not sufficient for us to memorize a a doctrine about the gospel. Or it's not sufficient for us to memorize a doctrine about godliness. or, Or to recite a doctrine about godliness. Or to teach a catechism reflecting a doctrine of godliness. Or reflecting what, what the gospel is all about. A doctrine of Christ. A doctrine of godliness. It must be lived out. Paul says, beginning in verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. For to this end we toil and strive, 
And in verse 15, he says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. He's referring to the things that lead to godliness. So that all may see your progress. Paul emphasizes training, practicing, toiling, striving. When doctrine binds our consciences, we will practice living it out. When we do not practice it, when we do not live it out, doctrine is not setting the tone in our lives. In the same way an individual needs to train to grow as an athlete, or a a soldier needs to train to engage in battle, Christians will train, they will practice godliness. When it binds our consciences, we initiate, we pursue godliness, we develop godliness. It doesn't happen by accident. Even the best athlete, Michael Jordan, my generation, LeBron James, those of you who are in your 20s, maybe Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, those of you guys who are a little older, well, they had great natural talent to perform at the highest level, they didn't just show up and play. They practiced. If Christian teaching binds us, we practice it. Listen to professor and author Dallas Willard. It is choice that matters. Imagine a person wondering day after day if he or she is going to learn Arabic or if he or she is going to get married to a certain person, just waiting to see whether it would happen. That would be, that would be laughable. But many people actually seem to live in this way with respect to major issues involving them and with a deplorable outcome. <clears throat> that explains a lot of why lives go as they do. But to learn a language... And for the many even more important concerns of life, we must intend the vision if it is to be realized. We must initiate, bring into being those factors that would bring the vision to reality. In what areas of your life are you demonstrating that the gospel, that the Bible does not set the tone in your life? How, how are you living in a way, how are you waiting for change? How will you initiate change when you think about those areas? If you're not making choices to bring about that change, it isn't biblical doctrine that binds you. It is something else. I have an old pastor who would say, if you're, if you're not doing it, if you're not living according to Scripture, if you're not living according to what you believe you think it says, you don't believe it. As we've been progressing through 1 Timothy, many of you have been convicted you should be praying for others differently. Many of you have, have expressed that you believe you should be developing as a future leader, and that means you should be handling your finances differently, or learning God's word in deeper ways, or learning to be hospitable. You feel things should change. If, if that doctrine binds you, 
if it is setting the tone for how you live, you will not be waiting to change. You will not wonder day after day if change will happen. You will make the choice to practice change. You will make the choice to invite others into your dissatisfaction. You will make the choice to do things differently, and you will set about new disciplines to, to make a new reality be, be come into the, to the works. You may make the choice to ask a gospel community leader or a pastor how to grow in that area. It is not sufficient to have a vision to want something different or to intend to do something different. When we do not practice change, we are demonstrating Christian doctrine does not set the tone in our lives. It does not bind us. Rather than the doctrines of Christ setting the tone, something else is. If biblical doctrine has been challenging how you pray, how you spend money, how you're hospitable with others, how you want to grow your character, what practices will you put in line with those convictions? What choices must you make? In Dallas's, excuse me, in Dallas Willard's words, how might you initiate bringing into being those factors that would bring the vision into reality? For the right doctrine to possess weight in our lives, we must practice it. We must live it out. And as the Apostle Paul says, we must teach it too. This brings us to the third type of doctrinal dysfunction, declining doctrinal declaration. The third type of doctrinal dysfunction that destroys a healthy church is declining doctrinal declaration. The the people of God do not teach others about the doctrines of God. They do not teach others how to study scripture. They, They do not teach others what the word of God says. They do not help others understand what beliefs or values or philosophy should bind us. They leave it incomprehensible. So with declining doctrinal declaration, we fail to teach others the doctrine that binds or sets the tone. To avoid this dysfunction, Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things. Paul emphasizes Individuals must not only see doctrine on display. They, they must not only practice it. They must hear the declaration of the doctrine. They must hear those things. Sound doctrine must be taught. It must be communicated with words. I don't think this is a big shocker to many of us. For individuals to learn about math, they have to be taught math facts. For individuals to learn about the Revolutionary War, they must be taught facts and figures related to the Revolutionary War. For individuals to learn about the growth and development of a baby, they must engage teaching about the growth and development of a baby. And so it's common sense to assume that for individuals to learn and grow as Christians, they need to be taught biblical doctrine. They need to hear what it means to follow Christ. They need to engage teaching about who God is and who they are in relation to him. Now, before we get into a a couple reasons why Christians don't live this out, it's important to note we have not all been given the same commission to teach that Paul gave to Timothy. We, We find in this letter 
there was a special laying on of the hands that affirmed Timothy's gifting and calling to teach the church. I think we understand that that gifting and calling does not apply to all Christians. And there is a special way that that Pastor Chris and myself have been called and affirmed to teach God's word that is not true of all Christians or all the people in this room. But that does not mean that if you're a Christian, you're dismissed from the call and commission to teach. When Jesus departed from his disciples, he, he told his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All disciples have been given this commission to teach, to make disciples. All disciples, those that have identified themselves as Christians for a few months or, a, or even a few minutes, to those that have been following Christ for years, all Christians are to teach them to observe all that Christ commanded. All Christians are to declare doctrine, to help others understand the biblical principles and biblical doctrine that binds how followers of Christ are to live. So what happens in a church where people do not teach others about biblical principles or biblical doctrine? What happens in a church where there is declining doctrinal declaration? Why would individuals fail to teach doctrine to others? Well, Paul identifies two particular reasons for Timothy, and I think they're helpful for us as we think about our own personal lives. In verse 12, he begins, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come... Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Many of us fear the perception of others, and so we do not teach others about God's word. For Timothy, Paul was challenging him to not let others' perceptions that he was too young determine if he was capable or qualified to teach others. Don't let those perceptions bind how you live. Teach. Too, too many of you, the perception of others or the perceived perception of others, it binds you from teaching. You fear others will, will look down on you because you don't know Greek or because you don't know chapter and verse, or because you don't know how to teach God's word like some of the better teachers in, our, in a church. And because you fear others looking down on you, you avoid teaching altogether. Don't let those perceptions or those perceived perceptions bind you. Don't let them lead you to not teach others. Teach. Teach. As Jesus says, teach others to obey all that I have commanded. Open up your Bibles with others. Read it together. Learn what God's word says. I would so love it if during the summer months, Pastor Chris and I would hear stories of people in our church seeking out others. Maybe it's people in the church. Maybe it's neighbors to to open up the Bible together, to teach others what God's word says. 
Don't let the, the fear of people's perceptions bind us and keep us from teaching God's word. Second, Paul warns Timothy to not neglect teaching others. And to do so, he, he needs to, to, to not neglect his gift. He needs to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Many of us are tempted to neglect how God has gifted us means to grow as teachers of God's word. We do not devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture to better understand what it says. We might be, we might be present on Sunday mornings, but we do not show up. We, we certainly sit in the auditorium, but we passively engage. We hear but we do not listen. We are present for information, but we do not digest that information. It doesn't challenge or transform or shape how we live. We're not devoted to it. In addition to not devoting ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, we do not devote ourselves to exhortation. This word exhortation has to do with persuasive address. Those who believe the gospel know how it changes how we live. It challenges how we live. And so neglecting the gift means we do not enter into discussion with others, whether they are Christian or not, to persuade them to live differently. We are content to let others live by the creed to each his own. We do not actually believe biblical doctrine binds how others live, and so we are not devoted to exhorting others. And we do not devote ourselves to the teaching. We do not learn how to grow in understanding biblical doctrine. We do not open up our Bibles. We do not read it with others. We do not ask questions of others to better understand it. For, for a church to grow in godliness and maturity, the church, not just on Sunday mornings, the people of the church must teach sound doctrine. Declining doctrinal declaration, failing to teach others what Scripture says, it, it will destroy a church. Paul concludes this thought of doctrinal dysfunction destroying a church reiterating the relationship between living out sound doctrine and teaching sound doctrine. In verse 16, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Doctrinal dysfunction, doctrinal deceit, doctrinal dyspraxia, declining doctrinal declaration, these things destroy a healthy church. When individuals keep a close eye on how they live and how they express doctrine, people get saved. People grow as followers of Christ. You will see fruit being produced in their lives. They will be growing in maturity. They will be growing in godliness. They will be growing in what it means to declare and teach God's word to others. Church, I I need this to be clear. Paul is teaching Timothy. He's telling Timothy. He is pleading with Timothy. When we teach others... When the doctrine of Christ sets the tone in our lives, we demonstrate whose we are. We are demonstrating it is Christ 
that binds how we live. He sets the tone in our lives. We, we are demonstrating that we are persevering in the faith. And your perseverance in teaching sound doctrine and living out sound doctrine and practicing sound doctrine, it doesn't just affect you. It has an effect on others. It will be effective at influencing the lives of those around you. It will be a testimony to them that the gospel is real. And Jesus, what he teaches is true, and that he changes and transforms and shapes and reshapes lives. But when we neglect sound doctrine, when we neglect living in accord with sound doctrine, it will lead others to fall away. It will lead others from Christ in what they say, and it will lead others to denounce him with their actions. Doctrinal dysfunction, doctrinal deceit, doctrinal dyspraxia, declining doctrinal declaration, it destroys the church. By God's grace, by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we not be that type of church or that type of people. May we be a church that is about healthy doctrine, practicing it and teaching it.